You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And finally, spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot, or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. First, Blood, which came out in 1982 and was directed by Ted Kocheff. It stars Sylvester Stallone, Brian Dennehy, Jack Starrett, David Caruso, Chris Mulkey, Michael Talbot, John McLeam, and Richard Crenna. The genre would be action thriller. I want you to book this gentleman for vagrancy, resisting arrest, carrying a concealed weapon. They knew he was innocent, and they didn't give a damn. That's okay, Warren. Don't worry about the soap. He's tough. Just save him. Try. John Rambo. One man who's been pushed too far. Right on top. There's no way out of here except through us. He was hunted. Trapped. There he is! On the cliff! And forced to fight back. Don't push it. Don't push it. I'll give you a war you won't believe. Sylvester Stallone. This time, he's fighting for his life. First Blood. Rewatching this again recently, and having now seen the other four films in this long-running franchise which followed it, one question kept emerging. Why is this film so much better than the sequels which followed it? And I thought about it. Well, it's not for lack of action. This is 90 minutes jam-packed with non-stop action, and it's pretty well executed by the director, Ted Kocheth. All of the stunt work and pyrotechnics still hold up. And it's not for lack of silliness. Yeah, the following sequels have all had their share of stock characters and silly lines, but in First Blood, you still have those National Guardsmen who are laughably ineffective. Woo! Yeah! Woo-ah! that man a seeker! Bullseye! Move in a little closer, just like you on Jima. <laughs> I don't believe it. Idiots. Steady. And you have Richard Crenna playing Colonel Troutman, whom I'll get to in just a bit. And it's not because this film has a message, while the others don't. Each film in this series has tried to be about something relating to geopolitics and are the fog of war, veterans' rights, PTSD, to varying degrees of effectiveness, of course. When you're comparing Stallone's monologues at the end of this movie and part two, well, it's simply no contest, with this being the clear winner. His character's breakdown at the end of this movie in the police station feels much more authentic and heartfelt. No doubt, Stallone is just going for it. And I went to get a couple of beers, and the, the box is wired, and he opened up the box, fucking blew his body all over the place. He's laying there and he's fucking screaming his pieces of them all over me. Just like, like this. And I'm trying to pull him off, you know. And it's my friend that's all over me. He's got blood and everything. And I'm trying to hold him together. I'm putting him together. His fucking insides keep coming out. And nobody would help. Nobody would help. And he's saying, Please, I want to go home. I want to go home. He keeps calling my name. I want to go home, Johnny. I want to drive my Chevy. I'm doing well, what? I can't find your fucking legs. I can't find your legs. I can't get it on the head. 
But that amazing scene does not really make the difference either if there is no tense buildup to it. No, for me, the key difference between this film and its sequels is its villain, who provides that tension with our hero. Brian Dennehy's Sheriff Teasel is an egomaniacal wannabe thug who really did bring the situation on. You got some place I can eat around here? There's a diner about 30 miles up the highway. Is there any law against me getting something here? Yeah, me. Why are you pushing me? What did you say? So why are you pushing me? I haven't done anything to you. First of all, you don't ask the questions around here. I do. You understand? Secondly, we don't want guys like you in this town. Drifters. First thing you know, we got a whole bunch of guys like you in this town. That's why. Now, we're never actually meant to feel actual sympathy for this guy, but Dennehy just still portrays a three-dimensional, flawed human who might have meant well and just lost control of things. And we see this all over Dennehy's face during the last 20 minutes. As he's hearing explosions and gunfire in the distance getting closer and closer, it's obvious that he feels remorse about bringing on all this chaos to his beloved small town of Hope. But he's pretty much resigned to going down with the ship. Teasel has no illusions that he's actually going to beat this supposed vagrant whom he arrested at the beginning of the movie. But he at least knows that this whole bloody affair will end once that said vagrant kills him. And this is not taking anything away from Stallone, because Stallone is genuinely great in this movie. It's really one of his best performances, even though it's mostly physical. But this film just gets better with him having a proper foil with depth, which Dennehy brings to this escalating conflict. I mean, even the lead villains in those other films, you have Charles Napier and Stephen Burkhoff in part two, who both pretty gifted actors, but they're kind of wasted. They're just not given much of anything interesting to do. And while I actually do have a soft spot for the Mujahideen versus Soviet insanity of that third film, it's still pretty forgettable compared to First Blood. This is just a very efficient action thriller with two compelling characters at its core, and that's a big part of what still makes it so special 40 years later. This brings me to the categories. The first category is, I'm going to add a little something, the best slash worst needle drop. This is the best and worst song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. And I'm going to start with the worst, because it's actually that bad. Now, I would be remiss if I did not mention that this film was part of a disturbing trend during the 80s and 90s of movies which were generally driven by orchestral scores throughout. Often good, memorable scores, too, but felt the strange, unnecessary need to have a ham-fisted attempt at a vocalized version of said score play over the end credits. Every once in a while, this might actually pan out okay with a decent song. Probably the most notable example would be Celine Dion's The Heart Will Go On, which we heard at the end of Titanic. Now, me personally, I'm not actually a big fan of that song, but it does blend in with the theme and the tone of the movie which preceded it. Well, at the end of First Blood, we are treated to what might be the worst appropriation of memorable theme music into a song by Canadian singer-songwriter Dan Hill. Not only does it just sound all wrong to transform what's actually a pretty muscular theme into a lilting ballad, but Hill goes one further by trying to describe much of the plot within the lyrics of this song. It's so bad that if you heard this separate from the movie, you might actually mistake it for some lesser song parody from Weird Al Yankovic. 
you know, a funny, spirited parody that's actually riding the coattails of a successful movie. He did this a few times, I think, with Jurassic Park in episode one, and those were funny songs. But alas, the song for First Blood, which is called It's a Long Road, plays it completely straight, and it is laughably bad. It's a long road when you're on your own, and it hurts when they tear your dreams apart. And every It's a long road. Oh, sorry. Song just kind of gets in your head. Now for the best of needle drops. Well, First Blood actually does have an impressive score from the late, great Jerry Goldsmith, which I would say is one of the best action scores you're ever likely to hear. It's a strong mix of piano, strings, and horns with some synthesizer in the background and often punctuated by flutes. What initially sounds like a military march often gets quite fast-paced at points, where it can even sound as if whomever is striking those piano keys is trying to keep up with the action. My favorite selection from this score occurs late in the movie and is called The Truck. At this point, our hero has finally found his way out of the forest and has commandeered a military truck. Predictably, the local authorities get wind of this and they block off the bridge back into town. And as John plows his way through this blockade, the music gets quite rousing. The next category would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now back to Richard Crenna, who plays our hero's former military superior from Vietnam, Colonel Troutman. This might be a controversial opinion for fans of this movie and even this franchise, but sorry, I think his character and this performance is the weakest part of this movie. Don't get me wrong, Krenna can often be fun to watch, but he almost feels like he's out of a different movie, like he's the trailer voice, sometimes walking into the story just to be a hype man for Rambo. Are you telling me that 200 men against your boy is a no-win situation for us? You send that many, don't forget one thing. What? A good supply of body bags. I feel like his character just kind of takes you out of the movie sometimes. I mean, who is this guy, and why is he having so much fun in the midst of this violent crisis in some small northwestern town? Troutman's only real purpose in this story seems to be to constantly rib Sheriff Teasel about how he is in over his head trying to take this guy down, and to dish out hero qualifiers about his trained warrior. And for anybody who might respond to this by saying, hey, what about Troutman in that final scene? Well, he does serve his purpose by giving our hero somebody to deliver that stirring monologue to. But that's really it. We see some silent reaction from Krenna, who is doing his best here. I just feel that a more serious character overall would have made that scene even more effective, given just how raw Stallone is. I mean, he is bearing his soul here. Now, I honestly don't want to pick on Krenna as an actor, as I've liked him in other stuff. I'm gathering this is more about what was on the page, and he just kind of ran with it. 
So whether this was a waste of the actor playing him or how he was written, the character of Colonel Troutman is just a weak spot for this movie. I'm just amazed that he allowed any of your posse to live. Is that right? Strictly speaking, he slipped up. You're lucky to be breathing. That's just great. Colonel, you came out here to find out why one of your machines blew a gasket. You don't seem to want to accept the fact that you're dealing with an expert in guerrilla warfare. With a man who's the best. With guns, with knives, with his bare hands. A man who's been trained to ignore pain. Ignore weather. To live off the land. To eat things and to make a billy goat puke. Oh, and for the record, I think his character and this performance it actually works much better for the sequels. This brings me to the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. For me, this would actually have to be the kickoff to what might be this film's most impressive action sequence. And this occurs roughly about 25 minutes into the movie. John has been wrongfully arrested for vagrancy by Sheriff Teasel. And to make matters worse, he is now being harassed while in police custody. Harassment which has been initiated by the abusive Officer Galt, played with sadistic relish by Jack Starrett. For some bizarre reason, Galt is insisting that they shave this suspect right after forcefully showering him. This starts to trigger PTSD flashbacks with John of being tortured as a Vietnam POW, and it also riles him up enough to break free of the group of cops holding him in that shower. We then see our hero quickly punch and kick his way through everyone in his path, eventually upstairs. Somehow, he recovers his top flight survival knife. I'm not sure how. We then see him slide tackle one officer, then pushes someone else out the window as he bashes his way out of the station. And then he's out on the street. It's genuinely a triumphant moment as we hear the first celebratory notes of Goldsmith's main theme for the first time in the movie. And then, because he needs transportation, we then see Stallone sideswipe some poor guy driving slowly past him on a Yamaha motorcycle. His John hops on the cycle, and he's off. And what follows is a frenetic chase with the local PD, led by Sheriff Teasel, in hot pursuit of our fugitive hero on the local city streets, then off-road, then up foothills, into the rougher terrain of a nearby mountainous forest. All the while, John keeps making it more challenging for his pursuers to keep up. It's a damn impressive sequence featuring several high-risk stunts, as it's also the birth of one of the great action heroes of modern times. Rambo. This brings us to the final category, the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Out of fairness to Ted Kocheff, I think he does a pretty strong job of directing this film overall. It's well-paced, it's handsomely shot, and most of the performances are quite good. However, from what I understand, it wasn't really Kocheff who had full decision-making power on the final cut for this film. Nope, that was Stallone. And behind the scenes, Stallone helped oversee the editing for this film to make it more cohesive and commercial. And apparently, this was one hell of an editing job, as this film's original runtime was well over three hours. It was eventually brought down to a lean, efficient 93 minutes, which never feels rushed. And beyond that, Stallone being an Oscar winner just six years prior for his screenplay for Rocky, he also had several passes at the screenplay. I believe at least six or seven. And he insisted on doing most of his own stunts even putting himself in the hospital a couple of times with some nasty injuries. 
And overall, Stallone does so much with this performance with minimal dialogue for most of its runtime. You factor in that very moving final scene, and Stallone just makes this character his own. And as I stated earlier, it does help to have a great villain, which Dennehy more than delivers on. But at the end of the day, this is Stallone's movie. Most actors or movie stars are lucky to have just one iconic character associated with them for decades to come. And with the success of this film and its sequels, Stallone now had two, John Rambo and Rocky Balboa. Rocky will always be a more special character for me. But at least for this movie, Sylvester Stallone made Rambo pretty special too. And as a result, he is the MVP. It's over. Nothing is over. Nothing. You just don't turn it off. It wasn't my war. You asked me, I didn't ask you. My rating for First Blood would be four and a half stars out of five. (laughs) Happy 40th anniversary to one of the best and most influential action films of the 1980s. This film pretty much created the one-man army genre, or subgenre, which we still have to this day. And honestly, few films since then have pulled off that type of story more effectively. And if you're looking to watch First Blood, it's currently streaming on HBO Max. And that ends another Last of an Elite Group review. Special shout out to my lovely wife, Marlene Gershon, for producing this podcast, and to my lovely daughter, Ella Gershon, for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.